Blog Talk Radio. monthly solutions-oriented talk radio show. Each month, we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, This month, we have uh, Dr. Dale Clark Farron, who is a professor in the um, Departments of Teaching and Learning and Psychology and Human Development at Peabody College in Vanderbilt at Vanderbilt University. Um, Welcome, Dale. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, Dale is the editor of two books dealing with risk and poverty, and she's authored more than 30, uh, I mean, 30, 80 uh, journal articles and book chapters. And today um, we have invited her here to talk with me about her recent research on looking at um, short and long-term effectiveness of uh, preschool programs, alternative preschool programs uh, for preparing children in low-income families to be successful in schools. Um, they, and there are a lot of really interesting aspects of it. We only have 30 minutes, and we probably could talk all day about it. Um, but um, why don't we just start generally, um, Dale, just tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing right now at Peabody. Oh, I'd love to, Brian. Um, This is really an important topic, and if I start going on too long, you just interrupt me and we'll make this more conversational. Um, There's a big push in a lot of states um, to put state money into scaling up and having pre-K programs for four-year-olds on a broad scale. Um, And this is a fairly new development. it's so new that we haven't had any research about whether it's uh, accomplishing what we want it to. And just as a little bit of background, um, you probably are aware that uh, in, the, in the U.S. we have increasing amount of uh, wealth inequality. And, and that's, you know, uh, troublesome. But more than that, we ha- are increasingly segregating our schools by income. So poor children tend to go to schools with other poor children. And Mm -hmm. that situation is um, linked to uh, much with this increased uh, achievement gap so that kids who are in poor kids who are in poor schools uh, achieve less well over the course of their K-12 period. So the idea is that if you could improve their skills before they go into the K-12 system, then wouldn't that make them more competitive? so that's led to this um, increase in pre-K programs. But we've done analysis where the, it's the only project that has actually done um, the gold standard uh, assessment. So we were looking at children who, um, by lottery, some got into pre-K and some didn't across the state of Tennessee. At the end of pre-K, those children who'd had a preschool experience looked a lot better and their kindergarten teachers thought they were doing a lot better. They certainly knew how to do school better. But troubling, uh, by the end of first grade, their teachers saw the preschool children as actually maybe liking school a little less. 
And that was kind of a harbinger of what we saw at the end of second grade, which is that their achievement started to go down so that the children who had not had pre-K were looking better. And that continued in third grade. Now, we're still following the children through uh, the middle grades, but that is of concern uh, when we start thinking about, well, what these children need versus what we might be giving them. Sure, sure. You know, I, I was going to ask you and and get back to and back to where you were at the end, but there was something you said earlier in your comment about poor students are typically in school with other poor students um, in in a lot of places, but certainly not uh, kind of the rule. Um, but in a lot of places, um, uh, social economic status is a proxy for race. And and so there are places where and a lot of the statistics that we're seeing in our other in higher levels of education, um, the middle school all up through high school, that the the more ethnic minorities you have in a school, the fewer qualifications you'll find among the teachers and and by qualifications a special training. Um, for example, teachers are often teaching out of their certification area, more often, I should say, um, teaching out of their certification area in those poor schools or schools that have high ethnic minority groups. And so I'm wondering, um, just as since you mentioned about poor students being with poor students, what's the case in the pre-K sector? Are you, is, is it similar in the pre-K sector where teachers are not as qualified um, to be in pre-K um, as they are, as you might find in suburban or private settings? Oh, Brian, these <laughs> we could talk for a couple of hours here. Um, so first of all, let me just respond to your comment. Uh, yes, uh, I think there are two different dimensions going on, at least in the K-12 system. One is poverty and one is race. And they, when they overlap, then you've got a double whammy of a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we absolutely know that um, in the K-12 system, poor children and poor black children in particular are going to school with teachers where there's more teacher turnover. So right. there's less, less morale. Um, the, what, what accounts for more disciplinary infractions is actually predicted by the percentage of black students in the school. So there's something that happens when you put those two together that changes people's perceptions of what constitutes um, poor behavior or good achievement. And, and I, think we, I think that is really troubling for us. At the pre-K level, you can see some of that play out again. Most of the pre-Ks uh, that um, – not all of them. So, all right. In some states, you have a push toward universal pre-K, and you have in New York City a push toward, in the city, universal access to pre-K. Sure. Nonetheless, the original information that's come out, you have an excellent program there. People are really concerned about looking at, you know, how the program is manifest. And what you see is uh, income segregation at the pre-K level. I think... In my work, I also see racial segregation at the pre-K level. Mm-hmm. And, and where that can be a problem, I think, are two things. One, the, the recent work from Gilliam, which 
and others which show that there's um, an unexamined bias in teachers in terms of the kinds of, in terms of their attending to behavior of particularly young black boys compared to how attentive they are to that same behavior in other groups of mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure they're necessarily aware of this bias, but you're right. So there's, so so what happens in the classrooms that I'm in is I see a lot more rigid control of behavior. So early on with four-year-olds, an assumption that what children need is training to do well in school. But by that, they mean training to, to behave. And that's not always compatible with helping children have an enthusiasm for learning learning and a joy in being there. Right. Right. And, and certainly um, you know, what you, what you were just saying about uh, the disproportionate uh, impact uh, those biases will have on, on, on certain groups. And, and in this case, I know that we've, I've had several researchers where we, in some cases they've been talking about disciplinary uh, infractions and the way discipline is being dealt with, but also things like uh, identification for gifted and talented. I've had researchers oh, yeah, on the show sure. that have talked about that as well. And it's really uh, an, an interesting um, uh, area, but particularly that since um, about two years ago, I had one of my colleagues actually, uh, Dr. Henry Levin, um, on the show, and you may be familiar with uh, Hank's work around um, the price we pay for not uh, investing in early yes. childhood. And and I remember, and even as I've talked to people all over the country, and I'm saying that the research clearly shows that, um, you know, our best investment is on the front end of this. You know, it's not, you know, say goodbye to high school, but that but that the you you get more return on investment um, in the pre-K. Um, are you seeing through your research, however, and, and uh, that uh, some of that is being reversed in kind of the, the benefit of someone going to uh, pre-K and even a good pre-K, some of that is being reversed by what they encounter in um, the elementary and secondary system that we have. Well, so let me give you two answers. In the latter that you just said is absolutely the case. So you can't, you can't improve children in pre-K and then send them into a failing K-12 system and expect that that's going to be enough. Mm-hmm. We really we really must work on our particularly our early grades. So kids are getting in, in in other data that I've collected, kids are getting farther behind in those early grades than they were when they started. And mm-hmm. which which Puts them, which puts them in a position for failure when they try to transition into the middle schools. So there is that. You're absolutely right. But on the other hand, a lot of what Hank Levin and other people are talking about in terms of the payoff from early childhood are, is based on programs that the way we ran them 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm old enough <laughs> 
that I've been in those classrooms that long, and I've seen a dramatic change in the way those classrooms are run. As we've focused on this issue about getting children, quote, ready for school uh, by, by teaching them very concrete skills in a very drill and kill and didactic manner in their pre-Ks, I don't think we're going to see the same payoff that Hank Levin and other people assert that we will because their analyses are based on programs we no longer run. When we start pushing these pre-Ks into the public schools and they become another grade level below kindergarten, they may behave quite differently, and that's what our data show, than what we expect from prior data. Interesting, interesting. So what about uh, students, the differences between students that are homeschooled, um, and, and, and I'm, I'm drawing a very strong distinction here, that are intentionally schooled at home versus no preschool. <laughs> I, mean, I just want to make that <laughs> distinction more for my audience than for you, um, is that um, what do you see uh, among those that are homeschooled and um, those that are um, schooled in a formal pre-K setting. Well, it's it, so. Let's just let's just think about this. One of the you know one of our concerns about this gap at kindergarten entry with children who come from impoverished environments uh, compared to children who come from more affluent families, uh, we're concerned about the gap in their skills. But those kids who came from affluent families did not get those skills by sitting down crisscross applesauce and not touching your neighbor and walking mm. down the hall with a bubble in your mouth, you know, mm. and and only to only speaking when you raise your hand and sure. having very short interactions with adults. They had an entirely different preparation from school for school, which mm-hmm. led to though to their getting those skills. Mm-hmm. And my fear is that we just try to impart those concrete those concrete pieces of knowledge without helping children learn the kinds of things that children from more affluent families know, like being very attentive to language, being enthusiastic about learning, being curious about things, uh, knowing how to persist when something doesn't work. If we don't get across those kinds of skills, then it won't matter how much of this concrete knowledge kids have, they won't have the right skills to do well in school. Mm. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. And uh, for our guests, that our listeners that may have just joined us, we have um, uh, Dr. Dale Farron, who is at Vanderbilt University, um, professor there in um, teaching and learning and psychology and human development. And we're talking about the effects of um, of uh, pre-K um, and uh, elementary, early uh, elementary experiences. Um, I'm, I'm glad you just mentioned the the actual experiences um, as a as a a indicator of how they will do and how they will perform. I I have spent a lot of time um, talking um, in the classes that I teach. Um, and we are doing um, um, at Columbia. We have a uh, a program that is Summer Principals Academy, and we have some of the really bright uh, young people who are going into leadership roles, and and they are 
in schools where what we're teaching them uh, in, in a lot of ways is in conflict with what they're see- actually seeing in schools about what children should be doing. And I, I, I'm really glad to hear you bring up um, the whole notion that um, uh, it's, not, it's not enough to have children just be quiet and not interactive. Uh, one, one really important thing that I use as an indicator, I say ner- uh, learning is noisy. And so if I walk into preschool and, or elementary school, you know, especially, and kids are quiet and walking in straight lines, and even some places, I, I, I'm sure you've probably seen some of these, where they have painted lines down the hallway for children. Oh, yes. Yes, you know, not to not to interact, but you you, you really are, are are striking a chord with me because those experiences for children don't amount just because they are in preschool don't amount and don't translate into the kinds of experiences that help them grow and be and get where they're supposed to go in elementary school. That natural encouraging curiosity. And encouraging them to uh, to to look deeper um, as they as they learn um, uh, those are, those are often not the kinds of experiences uh, students in a lower social economic group have. You're exactly right, and we are now replicating those experience that those kinds of poor poor experiences in our pre-K programs for those children. And I, I'm not sure where the pressure has come from for teachers. When I speak to groups of teachers, which I do, you know, they will say, a lot of them, especially the older teachers, will say, I'm not doing what I know is right to do for children. And I say, well, where's this, where's this coming from? And it's almost like it's in the water. You know, mm-hmm. like we we have to, you know, make children learn to behave and and we – we uh, we need to do a lot. It's the it's the old fashioned way of learning, which is that the the what you the way you learn is somebody lifts off the top of your head and pours stuff into it, and it's that's so contradictory to what we what we had done for a number of years, where we were focused on children getting much more interactive as learners, and now we seem to be backtracking to this old way of thinking that you know that teaching is telling. That if the teacher just tells you enough, then you'll learn it. And for <laughs> four-year-olds, that is definitely not true. Right, right. No, no, absolutely. And I, I have uh, four girls, and <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I think about, um, you know, early on some of the. So I, I was raised in the South, and 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 one one uh, common. Uh, way that people raise children in the South is, you know, you, you don't question when adults talk to you. And I've, I remember the, the conflict that came up kind of within myself uh, when I knew better from getting um, an education and, and studying education and human development, but also uh, child development, and knowing that that's how they learn. And that for some people that you, you know, they, they are thinking that a four-year-old should just do as you tell them to do. 
and without affording them the opportunity to ask questions. So uh, as an example, um, the, the response you might get is why. Um, if you say, here, do A, B, and C, uh, you might uh, get the question why. Some people view that as a form of disrespect. And those, we have a lot of teachers and principals and a lot of parents who are all stuck in that space. And I'm just wondering, um, are, are, you, are you seeing um, any progress in that area in terms of what, what teachers are getting at the lower end to teach them how to encourage students to be um, in, you know, kind of that, that, that natural curiosity, but to ask questions and to ask why. Well, I know we're running out of time. And so just quickly, um, a consequence of the findings in our study led me to do some very intensive work with 26 preschool classrooms that are in public schools here in Nashville. And we've been working very closely with those teachers to try to identify sort of the low-hanging fruit. What could we change about teacher behavior that would actually make those classrooms be more positive places for children? And some of the, some of the practices we've identified as being important are, turn out to be really hard to move the needle on for teachers. But we're still working on it. We have a website with information for teachers about how to – behaviors that we've shown actually relate to better growth for children and more positive environments. And we're continuing to do that work. Uh, we'll do it. We work with them for the, this is the third year and we're going to continue to work with them. And I'm hoping that coming out of that might be some guidelines that could be more generally applied uh, and that even principals like you're talking about could use as they go into pre-K classrooms to know what to look for that actually makes a more positive environment for children. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. And and so um, I, I did also have a question about, um, I know that you, you have also looked at children at risk and poverty. Um, for our audience, can you talk a little bit about what some of those, um, those indicators are or some of those, um, what a profile of what you consider a preschool student at risk. What are what are some of those indicators? <laughs> That's all. Oh, you you ask really good, strong questions. Um, yes, I, I um I, I know this is a great concern to parents. Um, but, and um, and we've kind of I think we've sort of misled parents, not just parents of poor children, you know, parents who are under stress, but. But even like my son and daughter-in-law are trying to figure out sort of what their role is with a, my grandson who's three and a half. And so what I would say is um, what's really important for going into school is you want, a child, you want children who are attentive and responsive to language. That is, you're not going to be able to teach them all the words they need to know. They need to be so attuned and interested in sort of the conversations and the language around them that they're picking up words on their own. Now, that sort of interest comes when you have conversational interactions with adults. That's clearly a, a, a critical part of that, is that adults and children have to have interaction, conversations with each other. 
um, because that encourages the child to, just as you said, when, when the child asks why, you want somebody to respond. And when the child asks why again, you want somebody to respond. What we see a lot in these pre-K classrooms is um, that, that the interactions with adults are very short and they do not lead, not, they do not lead to this kind of uh, more sustained interaction, uh, interest in language that you'd want to see. So that's one thing. The second thing is you, you, what's happening between four and six in the brain is the development of something called executive function, which has to do with being able to re- remember things, being able to persist, being able to pay attention, um, and if you're in these classrooms where you're being directed by a teacher all the time, you don't have as much opportunity to develop those skills. And so if you're you know, talking to parents, for example, or what you want children who's, who, is, who are able to remember the kinds of things you've told them. You want to encourage them to remember. You want to make them become somewhat more independent so they're less reliant on you for telling them every step of the way what to do. Because that's what's going to be required when they get into the K-12 system is much more independence of learning. Uh, And the last thing is you want them to pay attention, to sustain attention. And now we'll get to one of my other rants, if you're not careful, is uh, the digital media is not good at helping children learn to sustain attention. (laughs) All that swiping and, and spending two seconds on a page and swiping, over and doing the next page and so forth is really poor for uh, for developing sustained attention in children who are three, four, and five. That's sure. and, and I think the pediatric association is really cautioning parents about that. So you you want a chi- you want a child who can listen to you read a book and pay attention to you all the way through to the end of the book. You know. You want a child who can build with Legos and keep building a structure uh, and see it all the way through to the end. So these are pretty simple things that you can look for to say, oh, my child is coming along in a good way that will prepare him for success in school. Sure. And I think, you know, you you just mentioned uh, some really good points that uh, the message is not one or the other. There has to be a balance. Obviously, children need to... They're being brought up in a, a different century, and, and there are, are technological skills that they need to acquire. Um, at the same time, there are aspects to that we know good brain development exercises that they don't get much of um, that have to do with creativity and, um, and innovation for, for children to be able to Think about uh, um, new and different ways of doing things that um, I I recall once going to, uh, I I took some books to a school in a very rural area in South Africa. And um, one of the children, they they asked the children to say what it meant to them to get the books. And we're not talking about iPads or iPhones or anything like that, but what did it mean to get the books? And I, I remember uh, that one child stood up and said, I'm so happy to get these books because now I can have an imagination. And that <laughs> stuck with me. Isn't that beautiful? It, it was beautiful. And I, it stuck with me all these years because I thought about, so what is it that reading does? And if ever, it, it does provide 
um, for uh, practice at imagining things. And, and um, I think about, um, you know, that there are books that you can touch and swipe and hear. Um, but what if, instead of uh, having someone uh, having a voice assigned to a particular character, you create your own voice and what that person exactly. would sound like. So, so we could go on. You're right. We could oh, go no, on. You, well, let me just tell you one more thing about that, um, because this is really a startling difference in the data I've been collecting for 30 years. Mm-hmm. We see children at four now having much poorer writing skills mm-hmm. than we've ever seen before, which I think relates to the fact that they are not spending time with pencils and crayons the way people used to, but instead more with iPads and iPhones. And mm-hmm. what we what we know neurologically is actually making the letter by by producing it by writing it is linked to two and three years later better reading scores wow. not recognizing and pointing to a letter not you know swiping a letter but actually having to think of the letter and reproduce it by writing it yourself has much does much more to changing the brain and getting the brain ready to read than just letter recognition. Wow, that's fascinating, and and certainly the data that we've seen about the differences uh, in in what what how many words students come to school from suburban areas and certainly higher socioeconomic groups come with more words. Um, as well um, than the students that uh, even if they have preschool experiences um, come statistically fewer words um, right. than than do their their suburban and, and higher socioeconomic status counterparts. So um, there's a lot there. But uh, Dale, I am so excited for the work that you're doing. <laughs> Um, and you know, I, I we're going to have to ask you to come back at some other point because I just feel like we we just barely scratched the surface. But we often like to have our guests um, uh, kind of spark a lot of interest, and 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 we appreciate you coming and being on the show today, um, and just want to encourage you to keep doing the the work and and. Uh, putting out the information that we all need, both from a policy perspective, but also for practitioners. So thank you for that. Well, you're very welcome. As you can tell, this is something about which I feel passionately. Well, uh, thank you. And um, we also want to thank our listeners. Um, Join us back next month, and we will have another very interesting conversation. So until then, go well, stay well. Thank you, Dale. Thank you.